Good morning. It's so good to see all of you here this morning. Um, and I've, um, Kelly Beth and I are so grateful for your faithful support and partnership with us in the gospel for the last few years of our ministry there in Bangalore. Um, we're here with our daughter, Alethea, uh, as well, whom some of you have been praying for, that she would come home, and here she is with us. Um, and we're grateful that um, she's with us. So thank you so much for praying um, for her. Uh, today's passage is from 2 Corinthians 9, and my intention with this passage is to uh, thank you for your support and for your work in ensuring doing what you can to ensure that the gospel goes to the ends of the earth, not just through our labors, but through the many other people that you support, and to encourage you to keep doing it. So that's my, that's my goal uh, for this time. So if you will open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, I'll, I'll read God's word and I'll pray and then um, expound the word of God for us. But because this is the word of God, would you please give careful attention to how you hear it? Now it is superfluous for me to write to you about the ministry for the saints, for I know your readiness, of which I boast about you to the people of Macedonia, saying that Achaia has been ready since last year, and your zeal has stirred up most of them. But I am sending the brothers so that our boasting about you may not prove empty in this matter, so that you may be ready, as I said you would be. Otherwise, if some Macedonians come with me and find that you are not ready, we would be humiliated to say nothing of you for being so confident. So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised, so that it may be ready as a willing gift, not as an exaction. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. And God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. As it is written, he has distributed freely, he has given to the poor, his righteousness endures forever." He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only applying, oh, sorry, supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity 
of your contribution for them and for all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, as we open our Bibles, we need your spirit to open our hearts and to plant the truths in his inspired word in them so that we might be of holy use to you and for your glory and for the good of others in this world. In Jesus' name, amen. So here's the big idea that I want us to take from this passage. When God's people experience God's redemption, they want to partake in God's mission by being as generous as they can be with God's resources entrusted to them. When God's people experience God's redemption, they want to partake in God's mission by being as generous as they can be with God's resources entrusted to them. And I want us to see that in three points from today's passage. God gives grace, grace inspires generosity, and generosity anticipates results. God gives grace, grace inspires generosity, and generosity anticipates results. Firstly then, God gives grace. And we see this in verse 14, where he says, thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. What is that gift? Well, right before that, in at the tail end of verse 14, he says, it is the surpassing grace of God upon the Corinthian church. What is that surpassing grace of God? If you look at your cross-references, it'll take you back to chapter two and verse 14, where Paul says, thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession. That is the grace that Christ is leading his people in triumphal procession. What does that triumphal procession look like? Well, it is It'll take you to Paul's other letter written about seven years after he wrote this letter to the Corinthians in Colossians chapter two, verses 11 to 15, which is a true state of everyone, of all of mankind, even of believers, where Paul says, in Christ, you were circumcised, you were cut off with a circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him, how? Through faith in the powerful working of God who raised him from the dead. And you, you also, who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with Christ, having forgiven us all our trespasses 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demands. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. And in doing so, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. So much going on when you think of what is going on with respect to Christ leading us in triumphal procession. It is the image of of people, image bearers of God, all of us being children of our first parents, Adam and Eve, who plunged all of humanity into sin, death, and darkness. Adam and Eve who sold their birthright, if you will, to Satan, so that not only they, but all of their children would be born in the domain of darkness, sin, and death. We were dead in our trespasses and sins. We were enslaved to Satan's tyranny and sin's dominion. We did, we thought what we wanted to do, but really we were slaves to sin. We really had no freedom. We had an illusion of it. Yet, God set his affections upon his people from before the foundations of the world so that they might come to be his by his grace. We are told that we were forgiven. The debt was canceled. And this, this forgiveness is not just by wiping the slate clean. You've heard that expression, wiping the slate clean. When is the last time you used a slate, by the way? I remember growing up when my mother would, um, because I would not get my maths uh, solutions correct, she would give me a slate so I wouldn't waste pages, um, and I would just use the chalk to scribble my answers. But the thing about slates, they can be wiped clean. But God doesn't just, doesn't just wipe our slate clean by divine fiat. He doesn't wave a magic wand and make our sins and its legal demands disappear. We deserved the wrath of God. We deserved hell. Somebody's got to take hell for us. So it is in Jesus Christ that we receive a new record. For all of our slates are filled with unrighteousness. We have the second Adam, Jesus Christ, come down the second person of the Trinity in human flesh. Obey God's law perfectly, spotless. His slate, perfect righteousness. And then at the cross, he looks at his people and he says, take my slate and I'll take yours. My slate for yours, my perfect for your imperfect record. I will take your hell so you can have my heaven. 
so that you, enemies of God, might become the children of his heavenly Father. We are justified. We have a perfect, righteous, legal standing before God. In contrast to the legal demands that stood against us in the hell that we deserved. And then we are told we are adopted, that he predestined us. We, when God conceived of us in his mind before all eternity, he said the destiny of us who would come to faith in Christ to be his children forever. He predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. Not only this, these once for all record of being forgiven once and for all, being justified once and for all, being adopted once and for all, but are the ongoing work of being made more and more like Jesus Christ as well is a part of this triumphal procession. Paul would say in 1 Corinthians that in the congregation where idolaters and swindlers and the sexually immoral and our world likes to talk about all kinds of community. Community is the buzzword. We have the bikers community. We have the vegan community. We have, as was celebrated last month, we have the queer community. We are so tempted, we are hardwired for community and apart from God, we are tempted to make his good things the basis of community, ultimate sense of belonging, or the abuse of his good gifts, like human sexuality, as the basis of human community. But instead, in Christ, we are reconciled to the God of the universe from whom we were once estranged. We were regarded as his enemies. We are now reconciled. How about the maker of the entire universe and the giver of all good things as the basis of our identity? The ultimate community. To belong to this God. And to come and enjoy more and more of this community and identity in God. That is the journey of our sanctification as we come to partake of God's great blessings. You see, my dear friends, when Paul says there is this inexpressible gift, which is the grace of God upon us, which is Christ leading us in triumphal procession, it is as though imagine that Christ has come down from the heavens into the enemy's territory where we were held captive and has come to live his perfect life, laid his life down and surprisingly to the enemy's, all of the enemy's tactics, he, he tore open the grave, rose again from the dead, not only for himself, but he led a host of captives out of the grave, out of that kingdom and is marching straight into his father's presence, leading us into our home. He is the king, and we are the victor's spoils. 
And then you see that the rulers and authorities, the demonic forces are watching and gaping, not knowing how this could happen under their watch. How could this have happened under their watch? That these people are walking scot-free. They were supposed to be ours, slaves. But they're walking, being led by Christ, and they're unable to do anything because Christ is the victorious reigning king, you see. So my dear friends, here is the fundamental truth about each one of us who has come to Christ. We are Christ's. We are simply Christ's. He is our beginning and our end. He is our salvation. He is our hope, our life. And Paul would say, that is the reason why the gospel is an inexpressible gift. A word that you would not use anywhere else in the scripture, in fact, is uncommon in the New Testament era. An inexpressible gift. This multi-dimensional gospel is indescribable. The more we speak of it, like Paul, we run out of vocabulary to be in awe and wonder. Are you in awe and wonder of what the Father has accomplished through his Son to redeem you? Perhaps you need to go back to Jesus Christ and be fed by him, be nourished by him, and be in awe of who he is as our Lord and Savior. And that's the only the first point. God gives grace. But the second and the third points flow quite easily from it. And that is, secondly, grace inspires generosity. Paul is saying it is this grace that has been at work in the Corinthian church. The Jerusalem church is in need. They've been struck by famine and poverty. And Paul has taken it upon himself to raise funds for the Jerusalem church. And he's come to the Corinthian church to raise funds for their spiritual fathers and mothers in Jerusalem. And so they have already pledged support, but it's been a while since they had pledged support. But he is so concerned about their heart when it comes to giving. He says that he wants their giving to be a willing gift. Verse five, not as an exaction, not as a bribe, expecting something in return, but as a willing gift, expecting nothing in return. He wants it to be a ready giving, and a cheerful giving. God loves a cheerful giver, we are told. It's an attitude of the heart. Generosity, my dear friends, is first and foremost concerned with the posture of our heart than with the resources in our hands. Because God, being a generous God, that's who he is, has moved heaven and earth to save us. So when people are now awestruck by that generous love, they seek to be generous towards others with their limited means. 
So Paul is concerned that the giving must be ready and cheerful. And there's a careful shepherding here. And I would imagine if, if the Corinthians had said, we're, we're not in a place to give, I think he would have passed over and passed on and gone to other churches. But they were willing to give, but it still requires careful shepherding. So he sends people ahead of him to remind them of the need and why they ought to be generous if they can be and to give expecting nothing in return. And I can only imagine, my dear friends, that in your giving, the elders of this church have exercised careful shepherding and stewardship of your common resources for the expansion of God's kingdom around the world, Bangalore included. So thank you for your generosity and thanks to the elders for the careful shepherding that they've ex ex exercised in this congregation so that your hearts are constantly being reminded of the generous love that God has bestowed on his people so that by soaking in that generous love, your, your hands are made open to give more and more. So thank you for your generosity. We have experienced this kind of grace-inspired generosity in our own hearts and lives. Thank you very, very much. What is the return on investment? That's a good business question, right? What do you get by being generous? Um, Indians are obsessed with mileage. How much your car gives? They don't care about the looks as much. But how much does the car give? You know, what's the mile per gallon deal here? And that's a general principle of life for Indians. And I think that's a good business strategy, but terrible when it comes to the kingdom of God. What's in it for me is the basic question. You see, my dear friends, that's exactly what Paul was talking about. That our, that our gifts be a willing gift, not an exaction, not a bribe. That you give with, without expecting anything in return. You give not so much to, not to accumulate merit before God because Christ is your all-sufficient merit. And not to receive the applause of friends because you have been commended by the Father before the angels in glory. Who cares about the applause of puny little creatures? And yet, the Lord says, the Lord of the harvest says, while it is wrong for us to give with asking the question, what's in it for me? The Lord has something in it for us when you are generous. There are blessings tied Two, generosity. And that's the third thing we'll look at. Generosity anticipates results. The first result I think the Apostle Paul wants to think wants us to think about is reaping love. Reaping love. Do you see that in verse 10? He says, He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. What does he mean by that? Harvest of your righteousness. It's actually an allusion to, the, to Hosea, where the people of God at that time, particularly in Ephraim, 
were so wicked that they were abusing human life and human sexuality. They were using God's good gifts to commit sin. They had set up uh, altars for Baal in different geographical locations for convenient worship. There were human sacrifices being made. There was bodily mutilation being made in the name of worship to God. All kinds of deviances. God's people were using God's blessings for false worship. And so Yahweh through Hosea says in chapter 10 verse 13, you have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of your lies. Because you have sown sin, you will reap my justice. But then notice what Yahweh says just a verse earlier. He says, but sow for yourselves righteousness and reap steadfast love. Does that mean that if you obey God for your good works, you will earn God's love? Of course not. It goes against everything else the Bible is talking about. Because these are the people who are the offspring of Abraham, who is the offspring of Adam, and the whole story from the pages of scripture from Genesis 3 is one of grace. God saves by grace. We don't earn it at all. He simply gives it, and he wants us to enjoy it. So what does he mean by reaping steadfast love when we sow righteousness? Well, it is to enjoy intimacy with God. Does the believer lose his salvation when he sins? Well, no, he's kept by Christ, always. But does he lose the sense of intimacy with God? Yes, he does. Sin has that capacity. It has the capacity to bring about a thick cloud of darkness between us and God whereby we lose the sense of intimacy with our loving God and Savior. And so Yahweh, being the kind and generous God that he is, invites them back. He says, repent of your sin. And in your repentance, show that evidence of repentance. Let your repentance demonstrate itself in works by sowing righteousness and experience once again my intimate love for you in Jesus Christ. So here's what Paul is saying. My dear Corinthian brothers and sisters, in contrast to the people of God in Hosea's time who sowed sin and reaped God's justice, I pray that you will sow in righteousness and reap an, intimate, an intimacy with God and a basking in his love. So my dear friends, that's my prayer for you, that in your generosity, as you open your hands with that grace-inspired generosity to give, you will see more of the idolatries of your heart slain and come to enjoy the love of the Father in Jesus Christ even more so. And as a result, the second result, that generosity will yield in God's blessing, 
is to give more, verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. The God who gave you the resources with which by the work of grace in your lives by the Spirit, you are not clutching it on like a lover of money, but as a lover of Christ, you've opened it up for the blessing of others. May this God add more resources into your life so that he will multiply your generosity even more. You see, generous people have sort of made it a habit to be generous that it's second nature to them. They're seeking opportunities to be generous. So I pray that God would fill this congregation with more wealth, not to make your pockets fatter, and your homes bigger, but so that the gospel might go out even more so to the ends of the world. May God give more to this church. But the third practical need, the practical aspect of generosity is needs being met. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, supplying the needs of the saints, being living in Bangalore, we've had so many needs. And God has used your generosity to meet those needs. During the pandemic, we, there was a sister from our church who um, lost her mother who lived in another city, but she couldn't travel. And there were huge restrictions on our travel in our city, but Kellybeth and I were able to drive up to the sister's home and grieve with her, who had to watch the burial of her own mother online. It needed diesel. The car needed diesel. You helped pay for it. We just installed um, three additional ruling elders and a deacon. It's hard to come by good, solid, reformed literature for these guys' training and for the discipleship uh, of our members in our church. And they're sold in US dollars if they're av available in India, which an average Indian can't afford. How do we make these resources available for them? Well, through your generosity. Needs were met. You see, my dear friends, through your generosity, God has met so many of our needs. There is this lady who grew up Muslim, came to faith in Jesus Christ, was ostracized from her family, fled the city, and has had a difficult life. And Kellybeth has been discipling her for the last few years. And we've seen so much growth in grace as a result of, these, of her discipleship efforts. And not just hers, of so many others like Kellybeth who disciple other men and women in our church but they need resources for discipleship, which your generosity has made available. So thank you. Needs were met through your generosity. Fourthly, as a result of needs being met, we are told that the Corinthian church they're encouraged to give so that it'll produce thanksgiving to God. In verse 11, produce thanksgiving to God. 
The saints in Bangalore give thanks to God for you, for your generosity. They send their thanks with us as well. So thank you. And finally and ultimately, it's the glory of God that is at stake. Isn't that the chief end of man? To glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Isn't that the chief end of Lawndale Presbyterian Church? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Shouldn't that be your mission in life? To glorify God and enjoy him forever. Isn't that the main aim of missions? So that the peoples of the earth will glorify God and enjoy him forever. Isn't that God's mission on earth, that the earth will be filled with the knowledge of his glory as the waters cover the sea so that people might enjoy him forever and that in it, God might be glorified. My dear friends, in missions, God's glory is at stake. Why be generous? For the sake of God's glory in the joy of all the peoples of the earth. That is why you have been and become our partners in the gospel for which we are grateful. And ultimately, when we have done our bit, you know, we are your workers. You have your vocation so you can earn your livelihood and be generous so that we can go and preach the gospel and disciple people. We are your hands and feet in Bangalore. You have made our work possible. We are your hands and feet. And that, that's the kind of thing we see in, 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 in this chapter too, where the Jerusalem church is in need, and Paul goes to Corinth to raise support, and the Corinthians... Um, have a harvest festival or whatever to raise the support and then they give it to Paul and Paul gives, gives this money to the Jerusalem church. Their needs are met. The hearts of uh, the saints in Jerusalem are grateful. They're thankful. They're glorifying God. The hearts in the Corinth, uh, of the Corinthians are grateful for the opportunity to be a blessing and they're glorifying God. The Jerusalem church looks at the Corinthian church and they say, thank you so much for providing and supplying for our needs. The, the Corinthian church in response goes, oh, thanks be to God for giving us the resources with which we can bless you. Now let's move on to the next need and supply that need. And that's just the nature of the, ch- the work of the church. May we decrease and may Christ increase. That's the end result. The glory of God. We are nothing but his servants. So through your means, my dear friends, and God has only given each one of us, include and Lawndale Presbyterian collectively, only limited means. With the limited means that God has given you, May you be more and more generous and grow in your intimacy with Jesus Christ. And as that intimacy deepens, give more so that there might be more thankful hearts through needs met for the glory of God. As he takes your limited means 
and blesses it with his extraordinary unlimited means. Only God can do the amazing work that he does through the limited things we have to offer. So thank you so much for being our partners in the gospel. Let's pray.